Now, the WBBM Noon Business Hour. It's 12.03 Thursday afternoon, April 28th. Good afternoon. Thanks for joining us on the Noon Business Hour. I'm Rob Hart. Questions are being asked about the pricing strategy at sandwich chain Portillo's. We'll cover that in our next segment. But right now, the latest measure of the U.S. economy is out today. Let's break down that report on gross domestic product with the help of Bob Bruska, Chief Economist, Fact and Opinion Economics, based in New York. Bob, thanks for joining us once again today a decline of 1.4% on an annualized basis in the first quarter. That's below analyst expectations of a 1% gain. However, the markets appear to be shrugging this off because it seems like investors believe uh, this is being uh, dragged down by a number of factors that will reverse themselves later this year. All right. Well, you know, when we spoke earlier today, I'd mentioned that, you know, the big... uh the big impact in this report causing the number to be negative comes from mostly trade, basically exports, and also inventories. And I think what we're seeing in markets today, this nice market reaction, is a reaction to the likelihood that this is going to mean less Fed tightening this year. And the Federal Reserve, if it's looking at a weaker economy, is going to have a harder time justifying ratcheting rates up sharply. Now, of course, the inflation problem is still there, and it's still severe. And in part, the Fed has to decide, as it looks at inflation, how to parse inflation and figure out how much of it it can fight and how much of it is due to things beyond its control, like supply problems globally and fallout from uh, just things that monetary policy simply can't address. So I think you're seeing the monetary policy picture become somewhat murkier with this GDP report. At the same time, you know, consumer spending holds up and business investment holds up and uh, demand for the economy still seems to be relatively solid. And it's sort of these two technical things that are a problem, although export weakness could be a feature in this report that's going to be with us for some time. 6.9% was the uh, final figure for the fourth quarter of 2021. And that's a very impressive number, the best since the early 1980s. But at the same time, it was almost a, uh, I, I don't want to use this word, but I guess I have to, a rather violent or sudden reversion to the mean. Uh, because of the COVID pandemic, we kind of went right back to what the pace was looking like in uh, at the end of 2019 before we heard of COVID-19. Yeah, I mean, this is a very strange recession. I mean, it's a recession that's almost not a recession. I mean, it is a recession because it it did drive the unemployment rate uh, sharply higher, and it stayed there for a while. You can't really debate that, but the economy came back fairly strongly. There was an, a, a tremendous fiscal response, and in fact, probably too big of a fiscal response, and that's why we've got the inflation. Both monetary and fiscal policy reacted too vigorously to try to offset what COVID did, and now we have this legacy problem with, you know, since I walk through the streets of Manhattan, there are still businesses that are closed. There are still, there's still all kinds of behavior that's been affected. You know, you look at the transportation sector, and we can't find enough truck drivers, so part of the transportation sector is very glutted. On the other hand, you go into the New York subways, and there's nobody there. So that part of the transportation sector is uh, eviscerated. So there has been a lot of switching around of growth and a lot of um, strange impacts that COVID has done for the economy. And in the meantime, the uh, report of uh, first-time claims for unemployment uh, back at uh, lows last seen over 50 years ago. So employment and hiring is still uh, very robust and strong. 
Yeah, the jobless claims numbers are very low. It's just hard for me to wrap my mind around numbers that are this low. Um, but very clearly, it's a tight labor market, and uh, a lot of people, for example, retire. That's where a lot of our workers went who aren't working anymore. And the question is, with inflation rising this month, much of these people are going to be able to stay retired or if they're going to be forced back to work because, uh, you know, retirement, early retirement, it doesn't come cheap. Bob Brusca, Chief Economist, Fact and Opinion Economics. Thanks for joining us this morning, or should I say this afternoon now. Coming up, Chicago staple Portillo's deals with higher costs that could impact profit margins. Money conversation that pays a big dividend. The WBBM Noon Business Hour continues. Chicago area favorite Portillo's facing some challenges as it works to expand its footprint nationally. Let's get an update from Ali Marathi, restaurants and retail reporter, Crane Chicago Business. Ali, thanks for joining us today. What is it about Portillo's that is driving Wall Street crazy? Yeah, so, um, you know, Portillo's is one that went public back in October, so it's been a little bit over six months now. Analysts, when they were going public, thought that they would be great as a public company because they have this ability to drive really, really high volumes of traffic. And I think everybody in the Chicago area knows what we're talking about. When you just drive by Portillo's, even if you haven't been there, you can see how long the lines are. And they get people through really quickly through their drive throughs So the problem now that they're dealing with, um, and, you know, their stock's kind of gone down a little bit from its post-IPO high, is that they're trying not to raise prices too much um, to offset the cost of inflation. And, you know, typically, you know, a a company like Portillo's, their whole value proposition is really built on delivering customers value, keeping the prices not too high. And that's what the CEO is betting on right now. He thinks, you know, if we don't raise prices as much, they have raised them a little bit, but if we don't raise them as much as everybody else, then our customers won't be driven away. They won't come in and say, oh, my gosh, you know, I'm so sick of inflation. Um, I'm going somewhere else. So it's a long-term bet for him. Wall Street, however, doesn't like that. You know, for them, um, you know, those those lower um, price hikes mean that it could hurt margins. And the CEO has said that that is likely the case. Margins will likely be hurt, but he thinks it's going to pay off in the long run. And we're kind of seeing, you know, that, that headbutting going on in the market. Portillo's uh, opened at $20 a share in October. It peaked at 54 in November and uh, now at $20.44 a share once again. Uh, that is a higher decline than the uh, S&P 500 during that time. So that does explain uh, investors' trepidations there. But when it comes to pricing, Ali, who is Portillo's competition on a national basis? Yeah, that's a great question. So um, we consider Portillo's sort of a, a limited service um, restaurant. So it's not one that's full service where you go in and sit down, but it's also not necessarily fast food. So like McDonald's wouldn't necessarily be their competition. Uh, the analysts look more at places, maybe like a Chick-fil-A or, um, you know, even Chipotle, something like that, you know. And, and they're, the interesting part about Portillo's is that you know, they um, typically Wall Street might not focus so intently on the profitability of a high growth company like them. But this inflation that we're dealing with is the worst in four decades, and it doesn't really seem to be slowing down. Portillo's, they they buy a lot more um, meat than a lot of other, you know, fast food limited service restaurant chains out there. And I think that is what has gotten investors really concerned, too, because the price of meat has outpaced price increases you know, for other things. Yeah, Allie, the, the price of food is definitely higher. And on top of that, you try finding an autographed picture of Jim Belushi in this economy. 
<laughs> exactly. Ali Marotti, <laughs> restaurants and retail reporter, Crane Chicago Business. Thanks for joining us this afternoon. Then coming up next, teaching kids about the booming field of robotics. The best daily deal in Chicago, the WBBM Noon Business Hour. Robotics is one of the fastest-growing areas the tech industry and education could put young people in position for a very bright future. Let's talk about it with Scott Sargis, President and Chief Recruiting Officer of Strategic Search Corporation in Chicago, the website strategicsearch.com. Scott, thanks for joining us this afternoon. I have a second grader at home, and in her STEM classes, they touch on robotics. They make very basic robots, and then there are some community college uh, courses in Chicago where they actually have robotics competitions. And from your perspective, is that a great way to ignite interest in the field as, as a whole? It is. And if I could, Rob, I'd like to uh, answer it as a two-part question. Uh, from a macro standpoint, we need more and better STEM education programs, not only for children, but also their parents. And as proof of this, Rob, there was a recent study of 4,000 kids and parents that found that children with parents who understood the basic concepts of engineering were twice as likely to pursue an engineering career. And that's from uh, Engineering Brand Monitor. I'd be happy to share that with your listeners. The second part of this, from a micro standpoint, uh, Analytics Insight, which is one of the top worldwide AI and robotics publications, recently reported that 10 uh, robotic project ideas can help facilitate kids' robotics education. A couple of notes are a project to do a surveillance robot or a Wi-Fi-controlled robot or even a firefighting robot. So those would be a couple of ideas. Now, how do you, from a STEM education standpoint, though, uh, help kids uh, bridge the gap, the imagination gap, between what they think a robot is, like R2-D2 or C-3PO, versus what robots actually are, and uh, that there's, there's a whole world of possibilities just outside of uh, autonomous people that you see on the, on the movie screen? That's a great question. And, in fact, I'll give you an example of what one nine-year-old girl, Lucia Grisanti of Toms River, New Jersey, who won the NASA robotics contest by designing a robot that can dig and move lunar soil, uh, did to get to that point. She had worked with a number of interesting kits. There's a Raspberry Pi robot uh, computer, and we need more contests like that to kind of um, spark the imagination of kids. So, I think more and better types of contests and more and better teachers will help mint more and better uh, robotics engineers and scientists of the future. Scott Sargis, President and Chief Recruiting Officer of Strategic Search Corporation based in Chicago. Thanks for joining us this afternoon. The website is strategicsearch.com. Still ahead in Technology Thursday, an update on self-driving cars. This is Chicago's all-news station, News Radio 780 and 105.9 FM.
The WBBM Noon Business Hour continues. Good afternoon. I'm Rob Hart. These are the top stories on News Radio WBBM. The government is set to ban a particular flavor of cigarette. President Biden calls for more American aid to Ukraine. Technology Thursday. Electric vehicles have a lot of momentum, but self driving cars aren't far behind them. And the sale of Twitter doesn't completely free the economy from Wall Street. WBBM Business. The markets are higher. The Dow is up 570. Three points. The Nasdaq is up 328. The S&P 500 is up 94. AccuWeather says cloudy, brisk, and chilly today. Could see a shower or two this afternoon. A high around 50. We have 49 degrees at 12:31. And topping our news at the half hour, the U.S. government has released its long-awaited plan to ban menthol cigarettes and flavored cigars. It's the only flavor not banned under a 2009 law that gives the FDA authority over tobacco products. African-American groups and health advocates are backing the effort. Menthol accounts for more than a third of cigarettes sold in the U.S. and is overwhelmingly favored by black and young smokers. President Biden is asking Congress for an additional $33 billion to help Ukraine fend off the invasion by Russia. We need this bill to support Ukraine in this fight for freedom and our NATO allies, our EU partners. They're going to pay their fair share of the cost as well, but we have to do this. We have to do our part as well, leading the alliance. The proposal includes more than $20 billion in military assistance for Kyiv and shoring up defenses in nearby countries. The noon business hour continues at 1232. Markets are gaining ground. We're joined by Art Hogan, chief market strategist, national securities based in New York. Art, thanks for joining us today. On the day we find out that the economy probably contracted in the first quarter of 2022 for the first time in nearly two years. Uh, the markets are off in a nice little rally. Is this the uh, the bet that maybe the interest rate hikes won't be as onerous as originally promised? No, actually, I think that if you dig into the numbers of the GDP report, which is the first version of three that we'll get for the first quarter, you'll see that the consumption uh, function, both by uh, individuals, private citizens, and businesses, was much faster than anticipated. So the real drag was on a, a depletion of inventories and, and trade. So if you subtracted both of those, we'd actually be in solid positive territory. I don't think this changes anything about the, the path of monetary policy. I think what it does tell us is it's a, it's a bumpy ride that we're going to have right now. The second quarter likely is, is uh going to show some improvement and we'll probably see much more improvement in the second half in terms of economic growth. So I think investors that are breathing a sigh of relief about monetary policy should take a second look and actually look at what Fed funds futures are telling us. And there's about a 90% chance that we're going to see a 50 basis point increase in the Fed funds rate at the meeting, which is next week. And the, the trade deficit uh, that this uh, first of three reports is showing us is uh, just that the uh, the supply chain crunch uh, does manifest itself in a very uh, concrete way. Oh, it certainly does. And unfortunately, it gets worse before it gets better because we've actually got uh, a lot, a good chunk of China manufacturing shut down to us right now while they're going through the zero COVID policy. So unless and until they get a better handle on that, we're going to go through more supply chain issues. And, uh, and that's going to elongate the, uh, the, the the inflation pressure we're seeing on goods. A couple of uh, uh, data points that come out today. Uh, once again, uh, the unemployment picture is uh, is very strong and uh, is poised to go lower, probably. And uh, the pace of layoffs still at a uh, over 50-year low, so hiring is still very strong. And another uh, component of that report, which is very interesting, is, is uh, business investment, which is hotter than it's ever been. 
Yeah, I think that's a really good sign. I think that shows confidence by corporate America that uh, things are getting better, not worse. I think there's more jobs available than there are people looking for them. And I certainly think if you look at a couple of reports we saw in terms of earnings as it, as it pertains to the consumer, both Visa and MasterCard had earnings over the last two days, and both of them spoke to the strength of the consumer. I think that's, that, that's very important in the environment right now. So I think all of those taken together are a positive in the near term, and I don't think that changes you know what our impression is what the fed's gonna have to do to try to tamp down some of this near-term inflation that we're going through and even though it may seem like a distant memory with uh, full airports full airplanes and uh, uh, potentially uh, downtown sections of cities with more people in them uh, that report does uh, uh, contain the omicron surge uh, which slowed everything down in january yeah but the good news is that the Every new COVID variant that we've seen, and, and that includes the Omicron and the, and the BA2, has had a diminishing impact on the economy in its wake. And I think that will continue to be the case. As a matter of fact, we're likely no longer in a pandemic, and, and COVID-19 has become an epidemic. And that's a big difference. And I think you can feel that when you try to get out and do anything. If you try to get tickets for the Cubs or the White Sox, it's going to be expensive. And if you try to go to a restaurant beforehand, it's going to be crowded. And I think all of that's good. We're, we're shifting our consumption patterns back to services versus goods, which we've been doing for two years and just normalizing now. And I think that has a deflationary impact on goods pricing, which, you know, by the second half of this year should be a real positive. Let's talk about inflation very briefly. Uh, The consumer is spending his or her way through inflation right now. They don't like it, but they're going to it's not going to stop them from doing the things they want to do. Um, Is there a chance later this year that those dollars that we're spending right now will go a little bit farther than they are at this moment? I, I do think that we're, we're going to we've seen peak inflation both in CPI and PPI in the past month's reports. I think the reports start to taper off as we work our way into the second quarter and the second half, and I think that's going to help a whole lot of things, especially uh, consumer discretionary spending. And, and I think that'll be evident as we exit the summer and enter the fall. And, and all of that is likely to be positive for both the economy and for markets. Art Hogan, Chief Market Strategist, National Securities, based in New York. Thanks for joining us today. A little bit of sunshine on this gloomy afternoon. Coming up next in Technology Thursday, the latest on self-driving vehicles. Loaning useful information each weekday. The WBBM Noon Business Hour continues. Electric vehicles seem to be getting the most of the attention in the automotive space lately, but there's still a lot to discuss about self-driving cars. Let's get the very latest from Jeff Gilbert, CBS News automotive correspondent based in Detroit. Jeff, thank you for joining us this afternoon. When I first started doing this show in 2016, self-driving cars were all the rage. It was the the technology of the future, and we're talking about how uh, in in the in not too long in a time as far as the time horizon is concerned maybe the 2020s or 2030s you'd be seeing self-driving ubers and self-driving semi-trucks is that still the goal or is the purpose of self-driving cars now enhancing the experience for the human driver well there's so many things going on here when you talk about true self-driving cars the first ones when they do come and this has been a, a, a difficult time to develop them, will likely be in what we call robo-taxis, fleets, things of that nature, just because the technology is so expensive, heavy mapping is needed, they'll be in specific places like that, and then it's likely to grow from there. 
Google uh, was testing their self-driving car in Mountain View, California. The big Silicon Valley firms uh, did set up offices in Detroit uh, as as that merger of tech and uh, the automotive industry uh, became much closer and tighter. Um, are we are, are we at a point where we can talk about actually? Uh, uh, you know, where are we now in the development of the self-driving car? You know, compared to the development of the electric car, you know, in, throughout the '90s and into the 2000s. Yeah, the, the two leaders are clearly General Motors and Waymo, which used to be uh, Google's self-driving car arm. A lot of experts think Waymo is slightly ahead. They've got a service that's going on. They're doing a ton of testing in Arizona. GM is doing a ton of testing in California. GM is now allowed to actually test these vehicles with passengers in them with no safety drivers. Same thing with Waymo. They can't really charge for the service yet, but GM and its partner Cruise would like to launch an automated ride-hailing service sometime this year, and Waymo is also are pretty close. Uh, is the, the, the personnel crunch that is taking place in certain sectors, I mean, uh, trucking companies having a hard time finding drivers and uh, other industries that were in which drivers might have been plentiful before the pandemic, they're having a hard time these days. Is that uh, speeding up the investment in electric cars to try to uh, shorten that timetable? Well, well, in a lot of cases, uh, that that is an issue. For example, trucking, there's a lot of thought that automated trucking could work because, you know, they're doing regular routes. It's not like something that might have to twist through a city. And and, and maybe it could be something that allows a driver to actually be monitoring the situation for longer than they ordinarily would if they were driving themselves. In terms of self-driving taxis, this is something that the car makers see as a profit center. They see it as something as proof to Wall Street that they're tech companies, that things of that nature. I mean, they've been sinking billions of dollars into this, and they pretty much have to show Wall Street some results soon. And the amazing thing is once uh, they hit that fulcrum and you reach a point where there is uh, mass acceptance of self-driving cars, uh, it could fundamentally just redesign cities and towns in the same way that the interstate highway system did 70 years ago. Oh, yeah. If you think of, if you think of it, it could totally blow your mind. Say, for example, you actually could get a self-driving car uh, for, for yourself, and that's many years off before a person could buy a self-driving car. Well, you know, maybe you'd prefer to take a long trip at night while you can sleep. So that might change the whole need for hotels, things of that nature. So you you can think about that. You know, you could time intersections where where you wouldn't need stoplights. Now, this kind of stuff is probably decades off, but there are already a lot of people thinking about it. Jeff Gilbert, CBS News Automotive Reporter based in Detroit. Thanks for joining us this afternoon. Join us at this time tomorrow for Entrepreneur Friday. And still to come, the sale of Twitter includes debt that will keep Wall Street in the equation. Discussing the news affecting your money. The WBBM Noon Business Hour continues. Elon Musk's purchase of Twitter doesn't fully free the company from the clutches of Wall Street banks. We welcome in Michael Palumbo, the founder of MJP Capital, author of the book Calculated Risk, based in Chicago. Michael, thanks for joining us today. Uh, On Twitter and elsewhere over the past uh, several days since this deal was announced, the discussion about Elon Musk uh, buying these social media services really kind of centered around uh, content moderation. And based on uh, Elon Musk's uh, own tweets the last couple of days, it's certainly uh, the storyline that he's trying to sell as well. But when you strip all of that away, this is a good old-fashioned leverage buyout, and uh, there are some risks for Twitter as it goes private. 
Uh, good afternoon, Robin. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, the, the uh, you know even though Musk is is worth over two hundred billion dollars, um, he doesn't want to go selling a bunch of his Tesla stock because that'll cause a, a tax situation. So he's using a lot of debt financing, just as you said, just like just about all going private uh, uh, deals are are done in the, in the same manner. So basically, there's going to be a lot of debt in this transaction, and he's going to at least have to answer to the lenders. That means basically you still have to perform uh, on a cash flow basis. And Twitter is not exactly a typical uh, target for for a going private transaction. Usually they look for high cash, positive cash flow companies. Twitter barely has any cash flow at all. And so they are going to have to watch the bottom line. You know, he's not going to have to report the quarterly earnings. They're not going to have to report the SEC. But as you said, they're still going to have to um, uh, pay off their debt. And, and, and in order to do that, they're going to have to make some money. So as Elon looks to, to change Twitter, he's going to have to still have an eye on the bottom line. Now, is this going to mean more uh, uh, subscription features, maybe a paid tier, a greater reliance on advertising, more user growth? I mean, what, uh, what would satisfy the lenders in this situation? Well, he's going to have to make up that that, that decision. Uh, Twitter, as it is right now, should be able to handle the debt load as it is. But if Elon starts, you know, tweaking it and they actually start losing money, um, it could cause some problems. So that's just going to not allow him to just do whatever he wants, unless he wants to sell a bunch of Tesla stock and pay off the debt. He can do that as well. So he's not in a typical situation where. The, the 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 debt cannot be paid back. He certainly could do so if he had to. So that's another option for him. But but if he wants to 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 hold on to his Tesla shares, he's going to have to make sure the decisions he makes do not adversely affect the bottom line. Michael Palumbo, founder of MJP Capital and author of the book Calculated Risk, based in Chicago. Thank you for joining us this afternoon. If you missed any part of today's noon business hour, we'll have the replay podcast available shortly at WBBMNewsRadio.com and the Odyssey app.